matters of the mind. Are you looking for answers, ideas, or just want someone to listen to you so you can vent? Join Dr. Peter Sacco as he discusses what matters most, issues that surround the mind. He gets to the heart of the matter when it comes to issues involving anger, depression, addictions, fear, anxiety, relationships, sex, abuse, bullying, and everything concerning you. And now, here's your host, Dr. Peter Sacco. Welcome to Matters of the Mind, where everything on your mind matters to us. With me is Todd Miller, as I am Dr. Peter Sackle. And welcome, Todd. Hope we're going to have a great show today, it looks like. It, it will be a great show, and and uh, and I'm glad to be here again. And uh, a great guest, a great guest that whose whose interests fall into a couple of my uh, areas of uh, of um, interest you know i guess rock and roll being one and filmmaking which is also one of my interests although i don't do much of it I, i've always been fascinated by the the process of the behind the scenes stuff oh absolutely and uh you know she's in top-notch blues and rock bands she writes uh, not only books, she puts together uh, originals um, in terms of her own writing, her own music, and that's that's what we're talking about in terms of even writing scripts, screenplays, songs, the whole nine yards. In fact, she does a lot of the same stuff I did back in the day and some of the stuff I'm getting back into. And we're talking about Lorraine Devin Wilkes, uh, who's going to be our guest today. And uh, she's got a new book actually coming out, which is going to be really interesting, and we're going to get her to talk about it. Yeah, I kind of think I before we got on air, I kind of described her as a cultural gyp, gypsy. She's kind of everywhere. I mean, you know, hands in various pies, and um, I guess that's a, a great way to not just stave off boredom, but I mean, if if you're really interested in in being a creative type, then it, it really allows you to. Um, stay interested in the craft and you're not getting bogged down in one medium because that's what typically happens with with rock bands they get burned out because that's all they do is they they write rock songs and they play them and they go okay it's been 20 years i'm a little bored of this uh but someone like uh lorraine she's all over the place that's great yeah in fact um i think she's got a tremendous message uh for people who are listening um especially for those that like diversity in their life those that one, I guess, kind of do that sort of intrinsic um, inner journey into oneself and truly express who you are. Because I think, Todd, so many people today are always talking about one day I want to do this, one day I want to do this. I once had a dream, and I think that's the problem. We once have these dreams, or we're waiting one day to start living these dreams, where you should be living them right now. Go with it. You know, there's when you were talking about that, an interesting uh, thought popped into my head when I was rereading the success principles recently. Um, Jack has a wonderful story in there about a grandmother who was of a certain vintage, and um, a car had had rolled over her grandson, and he was pinned underneath. And this woman, who was probably in her 60s, lifted the car off of the, the grandchild and got him out to safety. And they were interviewing her afterwards, and she didn't want to talk about it for the longest time. And finally, she decided to talk about it and she says I don't really want to talk about it because it makes me realize at my age what I could have done with what I've you know was able to do with my life and what I should have been doing so it's it's interesting that it's never too late to reevaluate where you are and go after what you want and as it turned out this woman went back to university got a, a degree in uh, um, I don't know if it was geology or if it was uh, archaeology I believe and just amazing life story you know but I think, you you know, you kind of hit on a good point there. 
I, I think, Todd, a lot of it, people really do believe in this, uh, you know, I'm too old. And it's it's kind of funny when we're young, we're told that we're too young to do stuff. Wait till one day when you get older and wiser and then you can embark on, you know, whatever it is you want to do. And then when you get to a certain age, whatever that age is, then we actually go with this reverse mentality. Well, I'm too old to do this now. And I, I don't know. Is, what is the message that we're sending out there to today's kids? You know, you're too young to do this when you're young or you're not. You don't have enough talent. You don't have enough experience. But then when you get too old, whatever that is, you you don't have that youth or you should have did it back in the day. And I, you know what? And I think, you know, we're at a state right now and I definitely hope, you know, Lorraine talks about this, that it's never too late in, to start and it's never too early to begin. You know what the sad part of that is, that statement where you're told you're too young and then all of a sudden you realize you're too old? That is a a blink of an eye for most people. You know, you're, you're 16, 17, you say, I want to do X and the parents say, no, nah, forget it. You're too young. You're too inexperienced. Uh, you know, that's something you do later in life. And then you wake up and you're suddenly 53 years old or 54 and you go, oh, my God, I guess I'm never going to go to the moon. I'm never going to be whatever I, that I that dream that I had. And it just literally flies by. So my message to young people is, you know, there are you're going to meet so many people in your life that will tell you something is impossible or even improbable. Never mind impossible. And you just need to go for it. You really need to put your heart and soul into it and go for it. And you know what, Todd? I think when somebody tells you it's impossible and it's something that you've dreamed of doing, I think that's all the more reason why you should try to accomplish it because that's your passion. And I think that's what makes it even more more worthwhile is any great success story, if you read about or hear about, those were the stories where they were told impossible, never going to happen. The wrong, you're in the wrong gene pool. You're in the wrong family. You're, you know, you're wrong race, wrong country, wrong religion. Blah blah blah. Wrong gender. And guess what? These are the people that prove all the naysayers wrong, and those are the ones that we look up to. Yeah. Last thought before we go to break: uh, a, a baby bird sitting in a tree with its mother, and uh, the, the mother's trying to get it to fly the coop, fly the nest. And the baby bird says, "What if I fall?" And the mother says, "But what if you fly?" And that's really what it's about. It's not it's not about the fear of falling. It's about embracing the positive that you will actually fly and prosper. Absolutely. And you know what? I think that's a, too many people have sat in the nest too long or too many people are afraid of flying uh, because they're worried about falling. And I, you know what, folks, there's no such things as failures. There's only little setbacks, sometimes bigger setbacks, that create great comebacks. And these are what literally lift us to higher levels so that we soar like eagles and not quack, waddle around like turkeys, ducks, or whatever. And with that said, when we come back, we're going to have a tremendous guest, as we have teased you with. Her name is Lorraine Devon Wilkie. And she's going to talk about several of her books, including Hysterical Love, After the Sucker Punch, and She Tumbled Down. You're listening to Matters of the Mind on Listen Up Talk Radio, talk-radio.ca. Stay tuned. We will be right back in a few short moments. The music you'll hear on Out of the Blue will be jazz for the most part. No specific styles or genres. Every piece of music is handpicked to deliver quality performances. Out of the Blue can be heard on rtds.ca, live Mondays, 1 to 3 p.m., and encore performances Tuesday to Friday, anytime on demand. It's the true spirit of jazz, a touch of everything and then some. Thanks for listening. I'm Larry Green.
Dr. Peter Andrew Sacco. And do you have technological rage? Oh, yeah. The new rage of anger. Download my new book today, Technological Rage, on my website, www.petersacco.com, and learn what technological rage is and how it is sweeping people today, leading to online dating anger, texting anger, and social online networking forums. Hmm, did you ever think you might get angry texting, Facebooking, or online dating? Maybe you never thought it would happen to you, or maybe you know somebody that has this and you just need to understand it a little more. Welcome back to Mental Health Matters with your host, Dr. Peter Sacco. Well, hello there, and welcome back to Matters of the Mind, where everything on your mind matters to us each and every week. And for those that keep sending in emails to me, sending me stuff on Facebook, keep it coming. You guys got some great ideas for great shows, and it is all because of you that we exist. And as we teased before we went to break, we are so happy to have somebody I've been trying to get on the show for a bit now. We've had a little couple setbacks here in her weather stuff, vacations, but finally we got her, Lorraine Devin Wilkie, who is a jack-of-all-trades and then some. So, Lorraine, welcome to Matters of the Mind. Well, thank you. Good morning to both of you. Good morning. Especially, yeah, this is a really early morning for you because there's a three hours difference where you are in nice, beautiful, sunny California, and we are up here in the kind of warming up Great White North. Well, you guys are up near uh, Niagara, correct? That is where I'm sitting right now. <laughs> Todd's actually in Toronto. Yeah, okay, and I know it's been brutal up there, so I'm happy to finally connect, yes. So, so Lorraine, um, you've done many things. I guess, first of all, um, the best way to go about this is to ask you, how would you describe yourself, and I'm not going to say in one word or less or one sentence or less, in, in terms of what, who and what you are and what you do? Well, because I've done a lot of different things, I guess I, the only thing I would say would be uh, an artist or a, although I have to be honest, right now at this particular juncture of my life, if someone asks, I usually identify myself as a writer um, because that is kind of the bulk of what I'm doing now, although I, I still have a foot in the music world and I still have a foot in the photography world, the bulk of my time undeniably is spent writing. That would have to be the word I'd go with. So I guess then, what is your inspiration overall in terms of um, what really motivates you? What is your your dream? You have many, many dreams, obviously. So what is your passion? Are you living your passion? Are you still chasing your passion? Um, what makes your heart beat? Um, that's a good question. Um, I think I would have to say I'm living my passion, which doesn't mean that there aren't um, sort of stratum of passion that I have yet to reach in terms of, say, success in selling a book or success in getting a song placed in something I wanted. And there's all those kinds of markers that I'm always reaching for as a, as a person who has their foot in the commercial world. But I'm living my passion in the sense that I've been able to create a life where I get to do my art, where I get to spend my time thinking creatively. And I think, you know, to go to the very first part of your question, what drives me is, is 
I think I just grew up in a very artistic family, and uh, my view of the world has always been through the world of art, whether it was music or theater or books. And so that's just kind of the way my brain works. If I if I see something happening in the world that um, I have something to say about, I can come home and write an article and get it up on Huffington Post, and that makes me feel good that I can organize my thoughts into a cogent piece of information and share it with people. It's, it's about communication, I guess. I guess just like you guys, you know, you, you enjoy the art of communication. It just comes in different forms for different people. And I think for me, the arts have been my form of communication. In talking with Dr. Sacco before we started, I sort of described you as a cultural gypsy uh, <laughs> in that you have your hands in, in several different media properties and, and they all require, to my sense of thinking, I, when I first went to, uh, to journalism school, um, the first strike against me was, oh, I freely, freely admitted I was a songwriter. And they went, oh, you can't be a songwriter and be a journalist. They're two different disciplines. They're two, dis- two different thought processes. And, and how, do you, how do you jump between that from, from writing a song to writing a book to writing a column? How is that? How, how do you put on a different hat? Well, I don't agree with the person that spoke to you that it's a different discipline. It's a different, it's a different um, technique or a different um, medium, but it's not really, in my mind, a different discipline. It's about taking your channeled or inspired thoughts, whether they're of a creative nature like a song or a book, or if they're a more didactic nature like writing a journalistic piece, um, and putting them into form. And that's not really a different different party. I, for me, anyway, I don't believe that's a different part of my brain. And the reason I say that is because I was just recently um, was doing some freelance work as a writer to write pieces about something that was completely out of my wheelhouse, which had to do with architecture. And I was like, well, I don't know anything about architecture. And the project manager said to me, it's no different than anything else. It's no different than writing about you know, Hillary Clinton, it's like you gather your information, you interview your ch- your subjects, and then you, you put it together in a cohesive, flowing way. And I went, okay, you're right, and I did, and it was exactly that. It was, it still had the rhythm and pace and movement of writing a song or writing a creative piece. It, it just happened to be a nonfiction piece about a building. You know what I mean? And yeah. I think that... That, to me, has proven true over my lifetime, is that it, it, it all comes from the same source. So, so your guy was wrong. You should have been able to do both. Well, <laughs> like, I, think, I, I think he was worried a little bit too much that the creative element of the songwriter, where you're, a, a lot of songs are, 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 I would say a good blend of songs are um, songs about... Um, you know, fictional situations and fictional characters. And I think he perhaps thought I was going to bring a little bit of too much of that into the journalism world and, and maybe, uh, you know, make things sound a little bit greater than they were. Well, I think there, and this may still be the case, but when I started out a billion years ago, there really was very much the thought that you could only be one thing. If you were an actor, you had to be an actor. And, and I know that is still somewhat true because I have friends who are still very active in the acting world. One in particular I'm thinking about, and when he t- went to his agent and he said, I've written a screenplay and I'd like you to take a look at it, 
he was completely shut out. They did not want to know. It was like they literally put their fingers in their ears and didn't want to know about his writing. It was like, you're an actor. That's what we're focused on. That's what you should be focused on. And there's this, I really believe it's an incorrect belief that you can't do more than one thing well. Um, and certainly that was what I was told when I was younger. And it just didn't work out that way. I remember when I first came to L.A. very young, I, I was I was. Uh, focused on being an actor, and I completely shut out my musical world because that's what I had been told to do. Mm-hmm. And I told I missed it so terribly that after five years of that and my only minor success as an actor, I finally just said, "Well, I have. I guess I have to make a choice." And I did, and I gave up my pursuit of acting, and that was really the best we could call it was the pursuit of acting. And I jumped full into my musical world. This was during the '80s, and I. For a decade, that is all I did. It was 100%, you know, it was incredibly fun. But it was only until the end of that decade that I started very seriously writing again and realized that there's, there's no need to not do all the things that I do. And I think that's, I, but I think, but, but to be honest with you, I think that really requires the artist to be incredibly honest and frank with themselves about what their limitations are. And I do think artists struggle with that. You know, I, I work with a lot of people and have worked with a lot of people that have asked me to edit their work or, or give them notes on their work. And, you know, I think every artist struggles with really being clear about what their strong points are and what their weak points are. So maybe that's what your guy was saying, and that's maybe what I was being told, is that don't delude yourself into thinking you can do more than you can do. I think that's probably the better advice, but it doesn't mean you can't do more than one thing. You might just be good at both things, you know? Well, Lorraine, you're you're very, very good at writing, that's for sure. And you've got a new book coming out, I believe, April 7th, uh, just next month, called Hysterical Love. But before we go there, your biggest, uh, I guess your biggest uh, writing project, your novel, has been After the Sucker Punch, correct? That's correct. So, uh, if you wouldn't mind, please tell us about it. What was your inspiration for writing it? Um, you know, I always wanted to write a novel, which, you know, it's funny talking about being, you know, involved in many different mediums of the arts. I always wanted to write a novel, and it looked like this huge, insurmountable thing that other people did for most of my, you know, younger life. Uh, and then about, oh, I don't know, six, seven, eight years ago, I was, this story was inspired by a true thing, which was when I was uh, about five, six, seven, eight years ago, I can't remember what exactly. I was, my sister, my older sister, told me about a journal that my dad had written. My dad wrote journals throughout his whole life, which we all knew. My father died about 15 years ago. And she said, this one is particularly focused on you. And she gave it to me, and I read it, and, and, and it was, yeah, it was. it was. It was focused on me, and it was not very complimentary. And it had been written when I was much younger, and my father was very disappointed and frustrated in my path in life. And... My son, who was with me at the time, was only about 10 or 11, and he said to me, Mom, you have to write that story. You have to write the story of that, what it's like for a daughter to find a journal. of. I couldn't believe he said this. I said, you're absolutely right. I do need to do that. But I wasn't sure in what form. And even though this was a sort of a hurtful experience, I had been very independent of my family from a very young age on, so I wasn't terribly impacted by it, but I was in a woman's group at the time, and I told them the story, and I read them some of the excerpts from the journal, and this group of women were uniformly horrified. They were, like, crying and, oh, my God, you know, that would have just devastated me. And they all wanted to talk about what it would be like if that had happened to them. Yeah. 
And so that's when I got the idea of writing a novel. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do with the story. So after that, that gathering, I started talking to other people about it, men and women, and sort of asking them the prompting question of, how would you feel if you found a journal from your deceased father and it had these critical words about you? And I got so much great feedback that I ended up using most of that in the characters of the book. And that's what spurred the story. I wanted to write a story about what happens to this character I created. Uh, and it, the story literally starts, the first sentence of the story is from the father's journal that she discovers on the night of his funeral. And then the, the book goes from there of kind of how this impacts her life to discover that 10 years earlier, in the book it's 10 years earlier, he's written a journal that was 10 years before the story starts. How does your life transform knowing your father felt this way about you? And that's really where the book goes, which um, was a lot of fun to write because it allowed me to bring in certain elements of my own life, certain elements of people I knew. It is not based on my family. It is not based on... It is not my story. I say this because many people have asked. I've used elements from my life, as every writer does, but it's very, very much a fiction. And it was great fun to write, and there's a lot of humor in it. It's not all a dirge, but it does explore some deeper topics, which that inciting incident, I think, would allow one to explore, you know, issues of self-esteem and self-identity and family relationships, and it even impacts her, her romantic life and her friendships and her work. Our work, so it's pretty all-encompassing, and it's it's a, I think it's a real great ride. I'm listening to you talk about it, and the thing that struck me was your reaction and the reaction to the group, where they were all horrified. Does that speak to the fact that because you were more independent from your family, maybe it was easier to digest it or to take it in versus perhaps someone that was still more integrated in their. Um, family life and it would it would have been harder for someone else is is that what i'm hearing yes i think that's absolutely true um i come from a very large family i'm one of 11 children and i was the third oldest and so when i left for school for college there were still lots of people below me in the family and and to be honest i don't think my parents really had much time to pay attention to me so I, you know, as soon as I left home, and I left home, um, the last time I was home was between my freshman and sophomore years in college. Um, I was on my own, and I, I lived my life as an independent person, very much making my own decisions, which is interesting, because now as a parent, I look at my own son, and I think, you know, how incredibly different his relationship with me is than mine was with my own parents. And so, yes, I think you're absolutely right. I think that I was very, very separated from my parents' view of me at the point that I found that journal, and the women and men that I spoke to all still had very close relationships with their parents. So yeah, I think it hits them very differently. So then was the book maybe a small attempt to help others work through something like that? Definitely. I mean, I think that, you know, I tend as a writer, uh, and I know not every writer feels this way, but I do, I tend as a writer to feel like I want my stories to have some, oh, I hate to say the word message because that sounds mm. so incredibly pompous and heavy, but <laughs> I know, doesn't it? It is awful. Um, I want them to, you know, but I want them to have some purpose. You know, I, that's just my thing. I don't, I don't mind reading something that's complete fluff, but for me personally, I feel like my job here as an artist is to convey ideas and, and 
and inspire a little bit. And so I, I want what I write to have some meaning. And for me, this book was about exactly what you said, which was kind of showing the I, I had a few people actually say to me, I don't want to read your book because I have terrible, a terrible relationship with my father and I don't want to stir anything up. And I said, read it because it will take you the whole ride and it will bring you to a, a, a realistic transformation, which this character has. And so, yes, I think you're right. I think I wanted to kind of offer at least one story towards a woman's struggle to sort this out, which is pretty hard to do because her father's dead and she does not have him to talk to about it. And um, so, yeah, I think it is very much that. And I think it, it does offer that. I think the conclusion of the book offers that sort of um, resolution and closure that you would want from a story like that. You know what, Lorraine, one of the things, you know, as a psychologist looking at this, um, where, where it's been less nowadays in terms of the amount of divorces that are going on, the amount of broken families, estranged families, and that, uh, and having, you know, written after the sucker punch, I guess one of the questions I'd have for you is, how prevalent is it, do you, do you find, or that you would believe, and the readers of this would be, that um, to not have your father's overall 100% acceptance, how hurtful is that still today? Oh, I think it's, it's probably one of the most classic uh, pains that any child can have. You know, I think it is, you know, historically and, and through, you know, classic literature. And, you know, it, it, it is something that I think is probably one of the most universal emotions there could possibly be is the love and acceptance of a father or conversely the rejection and um, dismissal of a father. I think those are huge themes and huge motifs in, in literature and in life. You know, I mean, I think that all of us have parents, you know, even if, if some people don't even know theirs, and then they become phantom pains, you know, they become pains of what, what was that person in my life that I don't know? And I, and I think that it's just sort of that primal thing, right? I mean, our parents are our very first human connection. And so it's very, very important to have that relationship worked out, however it gets worked out, because the fact is some people have terrible parents and they're not going to ever have the kind of jolly relationship they would like to have. And so their job is to figure out how, as they get older, they can um, sort that out for themselves so that they can go forward and have a good, productive, happy life without that. Or if they have the kind of relationship where they can hopefully uh, fix things or let go of things or repair things, then, then you got to try to do that. But, oh, I think it's such a huge thing. I don't, I don't know that there's anything much bigger. Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, looking at it from a psychological perspective, um, and, you know, th th it's a common theme that goes out there. So many women will choose men that are psychological carbon copies of their father, whether that be a father that was a great figure in their life or whether it be a father who abandoned them, um, ignored them, and in some cases abused them. It's an unfortunate situation that it comes to. And, and I think which, you know, with your book, uh, Lorraine, which is phenomenal in the sense that I think it provides a catharsis. So for women listening, it probably could be very cathartic for many of them. Yes, I think so. You know, I, I think so. And men, too, because there are many, you know, the women and men in each other's lives are very impacted by either person suffering that kind of 
fault in that relationship. So, yeah, I do think it does in a way. I mean, it's, it's fiction. It's not a self-help book, but it does, like I said, it does kind of plot out a, at least one person's journey, and I think it's a good one. I think it's one that people can identify with and relate to and how to reconcile those issues, which, you know, I think it's, it's very important. I think it's, and I think you're right. I mean, I think that, uh, I think you're so right. When I was younger, I saw it, but even as I'm older, I, saw, I see it, that, that women do, they do do that. It, I'd like to say that it's not true, but I think it is very much true that women do oftentimes choose men either as a response to their father in a good way or a bad way. I think that's very true. And, um, you know, that's why it's really important. I mean, I think that as a parent, you know, I'm a parent, my, my husband's a parent, and I, you know, you, you look at impact you're having on your kids and you think, this is going to impact them the rest of their life. You know, this is going to, this is building synapses. I have to be very aware of what I do because I remember thinking that as a woman who'd had a lot of terrible relationships with men in my life, that as a parent of a son, I wanted to send him out into the world as an honorable man. That was my biggest goal for him. I don't care what you want to do, but I want you to be an honorable man because I've known too many that weren't. So I think especially with women, and I know my husband feels that way about his daughter, and she is a very honorable woman, and she's made very good choices in her life. But, you know, you have to um, think about all those things because it's trickle-down. It all plays into the next generation. So you're right. I agree with you. Absolutely, absolutely. Great points, Lorraine. We've got to go to a break right now, but when we come back, uh, Lorraine Devin-Wilkie is going to be with us, uh, definitely, and she's going to be talking about her latest book, which comes out April 7th, called Hysterical Love. We will be right back. Stick around. More Matters of the Mind just after the break on Listen Up Talk Radio at talk-radio.ca. Buying or selling a home, condo, or investment property may be one of the largest transactions you'll ever make. It's important to gather as much information as you can, and preferably from experienced, successful professionals. When it comes time to make your move, call the Mulholland Ross Real Estate Team with Keller Williams Real Estate Service at 416-230-8500 or visit www.realestatetoronto.com. Whether you're making your first move or selling your much-loved family home, the Mulholland Ross Team offers over 26 years of real estate sales and service across the GTA. Listen every Sunday at 4 p.m. here on Radio That Doesn't Suck to hear the team share advice and information that will assist you with your personal wealth through real estate. Questions or topics you'd like to see covered? Email info at realestatetoronto.com or call the Mulholland Ross team at 416-230-8500. Welcome to my new book, Niagara's Most Haunted Legends and Myths, which is not just a book about ghosts and haunted places, rather about history in the Niagara region. This book explores and uncovers parts of the Niagara region which are considered some of the richest in North American history and the most haunted. As a matter of fact, one of the bloodiest battles in North American history, the War of 1812, between the British and the Americans was fought here. And this year, the bicentennial year anniversary of the War of 1812 is covered in this book. This book explores most of the haunted places, legends that have existed from the 1800s right now to 2012. Each chapter covers a different type of landmark which not only educates readers on historical significances, but also entertains with anecdotal 
ghost stories and paranormal investigations. Join me in this book as we visit beds and breakfasts, ships and boats, trains, tunnels, museums, mansions, highways, forts, cemeteries, waterfalls, and many more, and see if the Niagara region is really haunted. Niagara's Most Haunted Legends and Myths is now available at Indigo Chapters and online on Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. And visit our website, www.niagara'smosthaunted.com. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Welcome back to Mental Health Matters with Dr. Peter Sacco on radio that doesn't suck.com and rtds.ca. Well, hello there, and welcome back to Matters of the Mind, where everything on your mind matters to us. That'd be me, Peter Sacco. With me is my co-host Todd Miller, and we got a great guest today as we've been talking with Lorraine Devin Wilkie, who is an author, musician, involved in film, you name it, she's involved with, and the greatest thing that she is is an inspiration, not only to women, but to men in all walks of life, because she has had a great, great, um, how should we say, experiential resume, and she's sharing it with us, and before we went to break, Lorraine, we were... Touching on your writing after the Sucker Punch, which was followed up by your short story, She Tumbled Down. And I want you to just, if you could tell us a little bit about that before we talked about your new book, which is due out April 7th, called Hysterical Love. Um, thank you, and it's, it's great to be here. I'm really enjoying talking to you guys. Um, you, she Tumbled Down was a short story I was inspired to write um, when a woman I did not know was... Uh, involved in a hit-and-run accident near my home, and she, she was killed. And there was a street memorial that was put up that was there for many years. And every day my husband and I would walk by it on our way to the beach, and I'd say to my, we'd always talk about it. We'd say, who could do that? Because they never found the person. And it was, they, the, whoever was maintaining this memorial would leave beautiful little notes and pictures of the woman, and it always sort of touched me, and it was very sad. And so I decided to write a short story about not this woman, because I did not know this woman, but the, the event, what, what would happen uh, in a hit and run with both the person who hit the person and the life of the person who was uh, killed. And so that's what the story is about. It's, uh, it sort of follows the, the um, it, 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 it involves three years after the accident and what's happened with the man who hit the woman and how that impacts his life and the life of the people around him. And it's very dramatic. There's, it's the, the one thing I've written that has no humor in it whatsoever. It's all very dramatic. But it, was, um, it's, it actually was a very touching story. And strangely enough, the woman who was actually involved in the accident, members of her family got in touch with me because I had also written an article about it in, for the Huffington Post. And they got in touch with me and were very moved that I had written this article and this short story. They understood that the story wasn't about their family member. And it was, it was very touching. They all wanted covers. They all wanted um, pictures of the cover of the book because it was a picture of her street memorial, which has since been taken down. So it was a very moving experience for me, actually. And, um, and it's a very, you know, interesting story, and I've gotten a lot of great feedback on it from people who were moved by it. So um, thank you for asking about it. Appreciate that. Oh, sounds like a very, very uh, 
once again, very, um, if you want to call it, putting yourself in the moment type of story, where, yeah. I, where, I think it's, where I think it's great with your characters. You bring characters to life where an individual can actually not only empathize, you know, with what they're feeling and thinking, but also become one with them. And it's like, almost like, I guess, Lorraine, as an author myself, well, how would you feel and be put if you were put in that situation and how would you react? Which leads us now to um, Hysterical Love, which um, got a lot of anticipation for, which is coming out. And I guess pre-order both at Amazon and Smashwords. So right. what, what is Hysterical Love about then? Well, Hysterical Love is has been a really fun book for me to write. Um, it, it, I decided to try a whole new angle on this, and it's written from the point of view, it's a first-person narrative, written from the point of view of a 33-year-old guy, and um, which was really a fun assignment for me as a writer to climb inside the head of a 30-something guy and tell his story, which is, it's very much involved with the the quest for what's real love, what's love. And it, it basically, I call it a sort of a bookend to After the Sucker Punch because even though they're very, very different stories told from very different points of view, this is another story that's about uh, an adult child finding the words of a father and having that impel him on a journey of some kind. And this story, it's a guy who, who recently gets dumped by his fiancée that's how the story starts. And in the process, we learn about his family, his work. He's a photographer. Uh, and at some point, he reads this short story written by his father 50 years earlier, in which he talked about a woman he had met right after college, his father, and it sort of described her as the one that got away. And it shakes him up a little bit because he wonders if this woman's heartbreak impacted his father throughout the rest of his life, and there's evidence to believe it did. And when his father becomes very sick, um, and he believes, the protagonist believes he's calling out this woman's name, he decides he needs to go find her and, and get some answers. And that's essentially what the book's about, is, is this guy's journey to find this long-lost woman from his father's past in hopes of getting answers to the big questions in life and it's a very it's funny it's touching and it also like after the sucker punch allows allowed me as a writer to explore a lot of deeper themes as well that have to do with love and how we choose love and again relationships with family members parents um the way we view our work our creativity and it's uh, it's a it's a really great ride. I've gotten a really wonderful response to it, so I'm really excited for people to um, for it to come out and for people to get it. I find your characters very authentic in, in your books, and Thank I you. th I think that I'm just going to throw this out there. I think this comes from the fact that you're also an actor. And I think that you are ultimately familiar with inhabiting a role, taking maybe characteristics that aren't your own, but making them very true and very authentic. And I think that feeds into your characters in your novels where they're fully realized and fully fleshed out because I think you as a writer are not just imagining things and then writing them down, but I, I think there's maybe a little bit while you're writing, maybe you're thinking about how this character would talk or walk or feel about a certain situation. I think that informs them in the novels. Oh, absolutely, and that's a really um, insightful comment because I think that is true. You know, I mean, I think that... Um, I think, I think one of the great things about having more than one thing you do well, and you should be writing songs, Todd. Still am. 
<laughs> is is that you do learn from the um, the craft that you you study. You know, you learn even if you aren't doing that anymore. And I think that yes, you're right. As an actor, you're obligated to kind of dig inside the psyche of the character you're playing and understand what motivates them and what drives them. And and I think that that very much well actually that you know that bounced into my screenplay writing, which was I did a lot of screenplay writing for many years. And to be um, this particular book, Hysterical Love, started initially from a screenplay that I wrote. And so, uh, yes, you're right. I mean, I, I was able to picture this guy so clearly. And when you're writing dialogue for characters in a screenplay, you don't even have the opportunity to get introspective. You just have to climb into their their embodiment, right? Yeah. Their, the, way they, the way they act, what they say, how they move. And so I took all of that, and when I decided to put it in novel form, it was great fun to kind of dig deeper and into this guy's psyche, into the psyche of the people in his world, and, you know, give them life. It was, it was really fun, and I think you're right. I think that when you act, you have no choice but to get behind the scenes of someone's mind and thoughts. So, yeah, I think that does play a big part in how I write characters. I think, Doctor, I think I Dr. Sacco would agree that you're probably a part-time psychologist as well, having to try and, as you said, crawl inside the psyche of some of these characters that you're writing about. Well, at least, thank you. I, I wouldn't even assume that. You guys are much more studied than I am in those arenas. But, I mean, I think it's to some extent, yes. I mean, I think that depends on, you know, what your goal as a writer is. And I think, as we were discussing earlier, I uh, it's important to me to put meaning into what I write, um, which is, you know, it's not a mandate, but for me it is. And so, yeah, you do want to have some some idea of the psyche and the psychological profile of the character that you're putting into your book so that they make sense. And they, even if they're struggling, I mean, one of the things that I've been told is that, and I, I take this as a compliment, is somebody was talking to me about after the sucker punch, and she said, your main character isn't always very likable. She's very flawed. And I said, yeah, that's true, because most of us are flawed, and some of us are not that likable. And, and, you know, that's true of this book, too. It's true of Hysterical Love, too. The main character is a very flawed man, you know, and he makes lots of mistakes, and, and, and so do some of the other characters in the books. But, I mean, isn't that life, you know? And that's really what any artist is trying to mirror is life. So, yeah. So, uh, you know what, Lorraine, and I think that, you know, it, that's the, the gist of any, I guess, really good story where an individual's reading it can not only, you know, follow a good storyline, which you provided, but also say, hey, I can see myself in that situation. How would I deal with it? And, I, you know, and I think Todd talked about it within the, in, in the sense of the parameters of um, the psychology of it, where I think it's, it's really interesting. A lot of people, I really truly believe, by reading um, fictional works, use it as therapy, and I think financiers, not through the books themselves, um, in terms of how the characters act and what they do in those situations, but it almost like jump starts their own internal thinking thought process where they become in tune or in touch with their own emotions and thoughts, which I guess put forward this entire healing process within themselves and help them resolve and solve problems within their life. I guess, you know, looking at historical love, that basically does that. Well, I think that's really good. I mean, I think you're right, and I think that. You know, sometimes you want, a person wants a more on-the-nose instruction of a non-fictional self-help book, and those can be incredibly helpful, as we all know. And then sometimes you don't want that. Sometimes you just want to enjoy taking the ride of a story. And if that story also 
inspires you or helps you heal in some way, all the better. You know, I mean, I think that for me, that's what I want in in art. It doesn't need to help me heal, but it needs to, to in my mind, share humanity with me in some way. I mean, that's what I'm drawn to as a reader and as a watcher of films, and that's what I'm drawn to as a writer. And granted, there's plenty of art out there that is not obligated to that at all, and I applaud that, and that's fine, and vampires and, and zombies and, and all that, that's all fine, you know. But even within those stories, I suppose there's a tremendous amount of humanity to be found if the writer chooses to infuse that. And I think that people do find healing in reading fiction because they see their life mirrored. I mean, I remember when I was young and I was reading, that's exactly what I felt. I would feel like, you know, when I was reading Little House on the Prairie, I was that little girl, you know, and I was experiencing life through the lens of her experience. And it makes you feel like you're part of humanity, you know, and it connects people. And I think that's one of the great gifts of art is... It's, it assuages loneliness in a way because it lets us see ourselves in other people's stories and sometimes heal. I think that's really true and sometimes heal. I think that's um, a great gift of art, great gift. I think that art, whether it be music, um, you know, visual arts or, or uh, photography or filmography, I think it can be consumed several different ways. And I think... It can be viewed simply statically and looking at it and go, yeah, that's a nice piece of work. It's a nice novel. It's a nice movie. It's a great, great song. And then there are those that dig deeper, that read the lyrics on the album jackets and um, wonder when they see a painting by, you know, Monet and they go, what was what was he going through in his life? And digging deeper to find the deeper story and then connecting with the artist. And I think. For me personally, that's what I've always done when I've consumed art. I've appreciated it on the surface at first, but then it it's almost like, a, I don't know, it digs down into my into my body and, and makes me want to learn more about the artist. Or I, there's a, a kindred spirit when I'm hearing a song by an artist going, wow, they really suffered. And I, I know what that suffering's like. And we're kind of alike in that way. Yeah. Well, I agree, and, and that's what art is for me, too. I mean, I was that little girl lying on the floor with the lyric sheet in front of me listening to music. I mean, that was me. I, I, I always wanted to get beyond just the, um, the superficial part of art, and, and that stayed with me my whole life. And, and again, you know, I know because I'm in the world of the arts, I know there are a lot of people who don't necessarily think of it that way, but for me... What you just described is the driving force. I, it's really important to me to tell stories that, that compel people to go deeper because that's what I want, and so that's what I'm serving up. You know, And if that's what you want and that's what my readers want, all the better, then they're going to get that from me. They may not agree with everything that I have to say, but they're going to know that they're going to take a journey that goes a little bit deeper than the surface and gets inside kind of my way of thinking, and, and, and if my way of thinking helps trigger some thoughts in you, the audience member, that's great. We're having a dialogue then, and to me, that's really what art should be, is a dialogue. I mean, I was just at an art museum the other day, and I was looking at paintings, which are the most static of art in a way, right? I mean, mm-hmm. they're just hanging on a wall, but there were some of them that you, you really did, if you stared at it long enough, and I, you know, you'd start to think to yourself, what was going on in the minute that that image was being conjured, you know. In the old days, obviously, people didn't take photographs of dancing ballerinas and then paint them later, so I don't know how Degas did what he did, but, um, you know, you look at these images and you, you crawl inside the story of it and you wonder, who is that woman and what happened to her? And 
And I think that's just an exciting way to view art and to experience art, like if you're reading a book. And that's what I want people to experience when they read my book. So, Lorraine, here's a, a, a cool question, I guess, for you, because I get this asked quite often, and it, it's something that's just out there. Would you say that, I guess, the, the paradigm or the, if you want to call it the teeter-totter, what what do you think is happening more in today's society? Art is imitating life, or life is imitating art, or the two just will always go hand in hand. Um, yeah, that's a good question, and 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 I do ponder that. You know, for me, I think it's it's all been sort of in turmoil in the last decades because of the internet and because of the instant communication we all have and because of social media and viral clickbait journalism and all the stuff that's going on that I do think that in some forms of the art, for example, uh, movies and theaters, you know, I think they are very much following life in the sense that in spite of the fact that they're all cartoon movies, they're following life and that that's what is driving people, young people, particularly the theaters. Video games make them want to see Captain Avenger, and so those are the movies that do really well. I think true artists, true artists do not follow a trend. I think art, no, I'm not answering this question very well. I think art imitate life or does life imitate art? Well, it's, a, it's a conundrum. <laughs> it is a conundrum because it's interesting, and this is such a maybe a dumb way to answer this question, but I've discovered some, this is so weird is that sometimes when I've written about something, you know, like in my books, I will then see it happening in life, whether to me or around me, and I think to myself, well, isn't that fascinating? But if you think about the fact that thought, intention precedes life, right? You have a thought and then something, you know, that energy goes into the world and then something is created. I would have to think that art imitates life in a way, you know? I would have to think that, no, wait, life imitates art. I'm saying this wrong. Because you write something and then, and then it sort of seems to appear in life. Does that, does that happen the other way around or are you just noticing it because you've written something or you've about something. It's like you buy a blue car and suddenly you see blue cars everywhere. I don't know. You know, I think that's a good question. And it is a conundrum and I didn't answer that well at all. But I think it's because I've thought both things. You know, in the general big picture, I think art must follow life in a way, right? Because as life changes, we write about how life changes. We incorporate the contemporary culture in what we write. So. To that extent, I suppose art imitates life, but it probably goes both ways, would be my guess. <laughs> that was oh, terrible. Forgive me. No, that no, was not erudite at all. <laughs> Great answer. You know, the way I've always looked at this and I've always told people is that we are definitely all our, ourselves. You know, whether you believe in God, the divine, the universal mind, whatever it is, we are our all all masterpieces created by that divine mind, that divine God, that we're here for a reason. And the bottom line is that we are art pieces living out life and the lives that we lead um, are, are works of art that we leave on the canvas. And in fact, uh, to take it the other artist's way, all of us have a song to sing. And unfortunately, too many people don't sing their songs. They wait too long and they live a life of regrets. And I think with your books, uh, After the Sucker Punch, She Tumbled Down, and definitely your book, 
which is coming out April 7, 2015, which is just next month, called Hysterical Love. You've embodied all that. Um, so, Lorraine, we got to let you go. And so, okay. for, and for anybody that wants to learn more about you, what is the best way to learn more about you? Um, the best thing is to go to my website, which is just, you know, my name, LorraineDevinWilkie.com. Um, it, it has links and information everywhere else you need to go to find anything you want to find. So that's the best place for people to go. Excellent. And Todd will have a link on our site for listeners that you can learn more about. Uh, Lorraine, definitely check out her work. She's an amazing artist. Thank you so much, you guys. I really appreciate you having me on the show, and I enjoyed the questions. Our pleasure. Stay tuned. More Matters of the Mind coming up after the break on Listen Up Talk Radio. We'll be right back. You can talk to me. Talk to me. You can talk to me. You can Welcome back to Matters of the Mind, where everything in your mind matters to us. And thank you so much for tuning in for this week's episode. And as we say, make sure that the life you're leading is definitely one that is a masterpiece. Uh, and yes, she's uh, created quite a few masterpieces, uh, Lorraine has, and uh, didn't get too much into the music. And I'm going to have to dig deeper and see if there's any of her stuff available to uh, to share with the masses via radio that doesn't suck. I'm, I'm quite curious. Absolutely. And for those listening, as we said before, it is never too late to start something new. And it is never too late to finish something that is old. It is all a state of mind. And you are as young and old as you think you are. And if you say it's impossible, then it probably is impossible. And if you say it is possible or all things are possible, then it probably is all possible. Because at the end of the day, you're the decision maker. And where you set your mind to, your actions are going to lead you. In the words of the immortal philosopher Jean-Luc Picard from Star Trek Next Generation, make it so. Have a great day, and we'll catch you next week on Matters of the Mind on Listen Up Talk Radio. You've been listening to Matters of the Mind on Listen Up Talk Radio with your host, Dr. Peter Andrew Sacco. Reach him on his website, petersacco.com, or you can reach him through Listen Up at talk-radio.ca. We really thank you for listening. Reach out to us on Facebook, facebook.com slash listenuptalkradio, on Twitter at at listenuptalk. We'll catch you next week. You don't need no pills. That man is not your man. 